This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Robert May. I'm chair of the Academic Senate this year. So I'm going to make a few remarks, and we'll get our event going. So during the course of this year, the University of California has been celebrating its sesquicentennial. This celebration harkens to the signing of the Organic Act by Governor Henry Haight on March 23, 1868. <clears throat> this date marks not only the birth of the University of California, but also of its academic senate. Quote, to insulate academic affairs from politics and unprofessional meddling, Bernstein points out in his history of UC, the bill entrusted these matters to an academic senate. But it was not until a half a century later that the foundations of the modern academic senate emerged with the so-called Berkeley Revolution of 1919, which set in place the concept of shared governance of the university. At this time, the regents placed in the hands of the academic senate the responsibilities for the admission of students, setting degree requirements, and the establishment of the curriculum, along with its advisory role to the president of the university. In 1963, in concert with the university coming into its modern form, the Academic Senate took its modern form with a system-wide academic, with a system-wide academic, oops, uh, with a system-wide academic senate consisting of the academic assembly and its committees, inclusive of its executive committee, the Academic Council, connected to divisional senates on each of the campuses of the university. In the context of this history, it's my pleasure to welcome all of you to this evening to our so Symposium, the University of California in Higher Education, its mission, history, and goals. We're presenting this symposium in honor of our, our birthday, the celebration of the 150th anniversary of the Academic Senate. Over the course of this evening and tomorrow, we'll be privileged to hear members of the Academic Senate, including many former, and I hope future, system-wide chairs, discussing a range of issues that the university has faced and that the university faces today and which it will face in the future. Given this is a scholarly event, there will be, for our enjoyment, disputation and debate. But most of all, it will be an opportunity to hear the thoughts and ideas of some of our distinguished colleagues about the University of California and what has made it an institution, as an institution, such a compelling target of scholarly research about higher education. I have to tell you, however, we, have to, we will have one change in the program uh, for tomorrow's uh, session after lunch. Uh, Professor Chemerinsky had to withdraw uh, because of uh, family reasons, and uh, Professor John Oakley has graciously uh, stepped up to be the keynote speaker for that event. So before turning to the first session of the symposium, on behalf of the Academic Senate, I would like to thank the University of California Office of the Chief Investment Officer and the University of California Office of Academic Affairs for their generous support in making this event possible. The Senate extends its grateful appreciation to Chief Investment Officer Shabdeek Singh Bakar and Provost Michael Brown. For his generation, however, Provost Brown does not get just to sit and enjoy the symposium, at least not right away, for he has the responsibility of being our formal host for the evening. Accordingly, I would like to call on former chair of the Academic Senate, Brown, 
to come to the podium to acquit himself of this responsibility with some welcoming remarks. Well, I had to pay to speak. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, had... <laughs> well, let me say, happy birthday, UC Academic Senate. You look good for 150. Uh, welcome to this uh, academic symposium in celebration uh, of the 150th anniversary of the UC Academic Senate. I want to acknowledge uh, that the idea for this event uh, came uh, from a brain burst uh, of uh, uh, former chair uh, Shane White and uh, then Ch vice chair Robert May. I don't know who, who really fully owns the idea. I think it was a collaboration, but I want to acknowledge them for that because I think it was a good idea. Uh, I am currently honored to serve as assistant white provost uh, and have been greatly honored and fortunate uh, to having served as chair of the Academic Senate. This was 2007, 2008. Um, uh, I love uh, the Academic Senate, and it is my pleasure to support this event. Uh, I think uh, we are all uh, very much looking forward to the talks, the discussion, and reflection. Uh, upon what the Academic Senate has meant, uh, means now, uh, and can mean for the future. Not just for the University of California, but for the future of California. Uh, we will uh, get a chance to reflect on UC's historical role with respect uh, to academic excellence, educational access, uh, um, and the power of the social contract with and for uh, Californians uh, will reflect on the evolution of and the distinctive nature of shared governance at UC. There is many an academic administrator who have come to the university thinking they had experience with shared governance <laughs> only to find <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. She said, only to find you haven't learned, you haven't found out anything yet. Uh, and, and that is true. Um, and, and we'll reflect on UC's continued prominence and responsibilities uh, with respect to free speech and academic freedom. I mean, it's contemporary now. Uh, and we will cast a look back and a look and a vision, I hope, forward with respect to the new challenges uh, facing the university. Uh, the Academic Senate was not always structured, uh, or, nor did it always operate the way it does today. It evolved. It evolved uh, to meet the challenges of its times. Um, some things uh, about the Senate, though, Throughout all the challenges that stand out for me that I think have endured over time, I just wanted to, to, to reflect upon, but you might disagree. Let me. Uh, the Senate is the place where the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, the Senate upholds one standard of excellence, 
to which all campuses are both held accountable uh, and supported to attain. Uh, the Senate continues to affirm, therefore, that there is one academic Senate, 10 divisions of that one Senate. Berkeley not only does, but has exemplified that standard. And for as long as, at least I can think, uh, though this is a non-flagship system, it has consistently been viewed as the top public university in the world. That said, because of many things, but certainly because of the academic senate, UC Merced has achieved R2 status at a speed faster than any other university. I was actually on council, it was George's council, uh, when, when uh, you said was formally established as the 10th division of the academic senate. Uh, the senate is not a union focused on the needs and concerns only of ladder-ranked faculty. Rather, it is an organ of shared governance, fully invested in the whole of the university. The only body, by the way, besides the president and the regents, uh, that have delegated governance responsibilities. So a lot of people talk about that they've participated in shared governance with a lot of groups and so on and so forth, but they don't have delegated responsibilities uh, like, um, like the Senate has. Its chief responsibilities, if you'd let me say it this way, is uh, who gets taught, what gets taught, and the determination of whether someone was taught. That said, what are the challenges of today that the Academic Senate can help not only the university meet, but actually California meet. And how can we face these challenges with a mindset of advancing this most precious of institutions? And that's how I see it. The University of California. Um, and, and maybe we can do this more intentionally than we have done before to advance intentionally the welfare of all of California's diverse citizenry. What are we going to do about diversity and inclusion among our own ranks? What are we going to do? How long do we have to stare at declining state support before we will think about how we help this institution become more independent of the resources of the state. I don't have one way of doing that. You said I could be controversial. We are academics. We can argue. But these are things I would ask you to think about as we chart our, our, our a new future. May we all obtain insights that lead to greater vision and collective action to achieve whatever ends we decide we need to set. That's what I'm hoping comes out of starting tonight and and tomorrow. May this be a rich time of learning and reflection as we celebrate the birth date of the university and the birth date of the Academic Senate of the University of California. Happy birthday again. See, I wasn't too long. Thank you, Michael, for those brief remarks.
We know that. So now it's my pleasure to introduce Michael Cowan, Professor Emeritus of American Studies at UC Santa Cruz and Chair of the Academic Senate in 2000-2001. Michael will moderate the first session of our symposium, The Master Plan, Access, Equity, and the Social Contract for Higher Education. Michael. <clears throat> bug. It's been nearly 60 years since the adoption of the master plan for this state's public higher education systems. I'm pleased to be moderating this session of our symposium that at base asks the important question, how well has the master plan held up, especially for the University of California during the massive changes and more than a little turmoil that have characterized these six decades. Our keynote for this session and our three panelists are well positioned to address this question. In the interest of time, I won't repeat the very useful information that you have in this symposium uh, program, but it's entirely worth reminding ourselves that all our participants, our keynoters and panelists, have led highly productive careers as scholars and have offered distinguished leadership both to their own campuses and to the university as a whole, particularly but not at all exclusively to the academic senate. And they all have not only thought long and carefully about the achievements of and challenges to the master plan, but have acted in a variety of writings major administrative positions, and key Senate committees to help ensure that the plan continues to meet the needs and aspirations of the state and of the university. I do think it is worth highlighting and urging you to read Judd King's recent book, The University of California, Creating, Nurturing, and Maintaining Academic Quality in a Public University Setting, which speaks directly to many aspects of the master plan as well as much more. I also urge you to inspect the massive number of relevant online publications generated by the UC Berkeley Center for Studies in Higher Education, which uh, uh, Judd directed for a decade. After Chancellor Blumenthal has spoken, our three panelists, Professors Hurtado, Jacob, and King, will offer their own comments in that order and without any further introductions by me. We will do our best to leave a healthy chunk of time after these presentations to enable you to ask questions of the four speakers and perhaps offer some comments of your own. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce our section's keynote speaker and my campus colleague, Chancellor George Blumenthal. As As an astrophysicist, chancellor, and former chair of the system-wide academic senate, there is hardly any dark matter in the universe <laughs> or the university into which 
his capacious mind has not probed. I wish to add only two things to George's profile in the symposium program. First, he is our first campus's only homegrown chancellor, the only one who began his career as a member of our faculty. Put another way, he earned the chancellorship the hard way. Second, when he retires as chancellor at the end of this academic year, after 12 years in the position, he will be our second longest serving chancellor exceeded only by our founding chancellor, Dean McHenry, who served for 13 years in the post. And Dean had the luxury of reigning for his first four years before any students arrived on campus. <laughs> that George has not only survived but thrived and in doing so made the campus itself a better, if not con conflict-free place is a measure both of his firm and diplomatic leadership and equally of his principled educational vision. I suspect we'll see some traces of that vision in his remarks this evening. Please join me in offering a warm welcome both to our panelists and to Chancellor George Blumen. Thank you, Michael, for that very, very kind introduction. Um, I hope I can live up to the uh, introduction that you gave me. Um, it's a, you know, I want to talk tonight about the master plan. But before I really talk about the master plan itself, I'd like to begin by talking about before the master plan happened. Now, UC, the University of California, has always been an innovator in promoting higher education. UC was the nation's first multi-campus university system when UCLA was founded in 1919. Remember, Berkeley was founded in 1868. So we were the first multi-campus system. And UC faculty helped establish the nation's first uh, network of community colleges in 1907 with an associate degree paving the way to a full year, for a full four-year bachelor's degree. And there was funding. More than a century ago, in 1911, the state committed to fund enrollment growth, allowing UC to meet the rapidly growing needs of the state of California. And during the first half of the 20th, 20th century, UC was able to accept the top 15% of high school graduates, who, while also enrolling a high percentage of transfer students as well. There was a commitment to provide wide access to an excellent, affordable education, even before the master plan came into being. California leaders long recognized the power of higher ed to provide social mobility to individuals and economic prosperity to the greater community. That is our history. So how and why did the master plan itself come about? By the late 1950s, it was apparent that change was needed. The state was facing economic decline. The new governor was weary of educators bickering over academic program turf and resources. Gee, do we bicker? All right. There was chaos among CSU campuses, as well as the community colleges, 
wide gaps existed between the best and the worst of them, so that they weren't really anything approaching a system. And it was apparent that there was a need, a dire need, for some systemic structure. Perhaps most importantly, there was at the time massive projected growth in higher education enrollment. With children born after World War II coming of age, as well as the need to educate a continuing stream of returning veterans. California needed a plan for higher education that would maintain quality in the face of massively growing demand. That's a theme you'll hear over and over again, maintaining quality in the face of ever-increasing demand. So enter Pat Brown, the more education-friendly of the Governor Browns, <laughs> as well as enter Clark Kerr, then the UC president, who was himself an academic visionary. Crafting the master plan was a political fight in a number of arenas. It was a fight among various higher education segments. For example, there was competition for students among campuses in the various segments. There were competition to be able to offer degree programs. So the plan, you know, many speak of the plan as a visionary document but others speak of it as a sort of a hard-hearted political compromise. Which of those was it? Well, the truth is it was probably a little bit of both, both a visionary document and a hard-headed political compromise. John Aubrey Douglas has pointed out that what the master plan prevented is just as important as what the master plan actually did. For example, it avoided having a single board over all three segments of higher education, as apparently Governor Brown wanted at the time. The master plan had a number of guiding principles. Some form of higher education should be available to all, to everyone, regardless of their means. And academic progress, the ability to get an education, should be available depending only on individual proficiency. That was the key underlying presumption of the plan. And that's what's shown in this quote by Clark Kerr, which I won't read, but which you can read on the screen. Because Kerr understood the magnitude of what they were attempting to do at that time. There was agreement that there needed to be a differentiation of function among the various universities in California. So each of the three segments of higher education could focus on excellence in different areas so as not to waste public resources by needlessly duplicating efforts. So what did the plan do? Well, the plan was really quite brilliant. It transformed a collection of uncoordinated competing colleges and universities into a coherent system, a three-part system of public research universities, comprehensive four-year undergraduate campuses, and open-access community colleges. The master plan gave eligibility targets to the various segments. The top 12.5% of all graduating public high school students would be eligible for admission to UC. The top 33.3% would be eligible for admission to CSU. And all high school graduates would be eligible to attend one of California's community colleges. That was the basic idea of the plan. UC, the University of California, would be the state's primary public research university. 
UC would educate the best and the brightest. We would grant baccalaureate degrees, masters, doctoral, and other professional degrees. And as I said, we would admit from the top 12.5% of the state high school's graduates. And UC was also distinct because it was because of the research mission of the university. It was the state's research arm as well. The California State University system would take from the top third of students. Its focus would be on the liberal arts and sciences, engineering, and business schools. It would grant baccalaureate degrees and master's degrees and offer professional programs. And it has grown. CSU is now the largest four-year public university system in the United States. And finally, the community college system would accept anyone who wanted to pursue higher education. Its primary mission was academic and vocational instruction through the first two years of undergraduate education. The assumption was that graduates of the community colleges would transfer to UC or to CSU to earn a four-year degree. The community colleges were also to provide remedial instruction, for example, in, in addition to English as a second language and non-credit instruction, community service courses, and workforce training. The California community college system today is the largest system of higher education in the United States. It now serves more than 2.1 million students. This framework encouraged and enabled each of the three segments to excel within its own responsibilities. It ensured the separate arms of higher education systems worked together cohesively to advance the state's interests. And the role of the independent colleges and universities in California was also addressed. The plan envisioned a single continuum of educational opportunity from small private colleges to large public universities. And importantly, particularly importantly to think about today, affordability was embedded in the plan. The plan sought the maximum value for taxpayers of education. Now it noted that there would be fees for students, and those fees would be periodically increasing to cover out-of-classroom services, such as administrative costs, counseling, health services, and sports. But tuition for California residents was to be free. Let me repeat that. <laughs> tuition for California residents was to be free. And by tuition, I mean the cost of hiring instructors, the cost of running the, the instructional mission of the University of California. Now, it might amuse some of you to know that in addition, the master plan also called for faculty to have expanded fringe benefits, such as free parking. <laughs> but this is key to the question, is higher education a private, a public good or a private benefit? To that important question, which is asked all the time today, the state expressed a firm belief that higher education at all levels was a benefit to the state, priming the economy and preparing the next generation of leaders. 
That's what the master plan was. So how transformative has it actually been? Well, my own opinion is that it's been wildly successful, and let me explain why. UC's research and scientific discoveries have driven innovation and powered the state's economy, generating benefits not only for California, but for the nation and the world. California's economy today, right now, is the fifth largest economy in the world, if we were a country. Many of the state's leading industries grew from UC research, including biotechnology, computing, semiconductors, telecommunications, and agriculture. Our research in nanotechnology, clean energy, neuroscience, genomics, and medicine is helping drive the next wave of California's economic growth. The economic impact of UC activity is estimated at $46 billion. And as the slide shows, contributions to the state's gross product estimated is estimated at more than $32 billion. But these, these figures, impressive though they might be, only tell part of the story because they don't capture that a UC invention may have started an entire industry and paid dividends for years or decades into the future. In fact, UC has become a research powerhouse by any measure. UC spends approximately $5 billion annually on research, with 80% from federal and other funding sources. That funding supports more than 27,000 researchers, graduate students, and postdocs, and results in the purchase of goods and services uh, totaling more than a billion dollars annually. UC researchers generate about five inventions a day. Imagine that, five inventions a day, leading to about 500 patents a year and 2,400 technology licenses. Notably, UC patents include the hepatitis B vaccine, magnetic resonance imaging, the nicotine patch. And the big hits are not just in medicine and high-tech. UC's agricultural research programs have developed new varieties of fruits, vegetables, and plants. Its biggest earners have been strawberries. In fact, one variety, the Camarosa, has earned UC more than $41 million. In 2014, California-based startups... California-based startups based on UC technology licenses employed more than 19,000 workers and generated nearly $14 billion in revenue. And of course, UC is a huge player in medical facilities and agricultural arenas. UC operates 17 health professional schools and 10 hospitals and is the primary generator of doctors and health medicine researchers in California with a total budget of $10.9 million. UC Research has helped California become the, the state's top, the nation's top agricultural state, with farm revenues in excess of $46 billion, including 700 academic researchers focused on ag, more than 300 ag advisors and specialists, and nearly 60 cooperative extension offices. And success is measured by other measures as well. UC has generated 63 Nobel Prize winners, 88 MacArthur Genius Grants, 63 National Medal of Science winners, and 38 Pulitzer Prize winners, six of whom, by the way, are from my campus. 
You know, it's said that imitation is the uh, greatest form of flattery. And that imitation of the master plan has occurred. It's occurred in other states, which have, some of whom have mimicked or copied the master plan, even in other countries, have imitated the structure of what has now become known internationally as the California idea. The master plan inspired President Lyndon Johnson's Higher Education Act, which was passed in 1965 a section of which focused exclusively on equal access for students, especially supporting those students from low-income families. That act was the precursor to today's federal Pell Grant program. What about coordination under the master plan? Well, the, the founders of the master plan realized that with three separate systems, there needed to be some coordination among them. So they set up a coordinating council, which initially had equal representatives from each of the four segments. And just to remind you, when I talk of four segments, I'm talking about the three public segments as well as private colleges and universities. The master plan recognized that that body, that, that, that some central body was needed to be responsible for this coordination and planning. Now, that coordinating council in 1974 was replaced by a different organization called CPEC, the California Post-Secondary Education Commission. As I said, it was established in 1974, and it served a unique role, integrating policy, fiscal, and programmatic analyses about the state's entire system of educational, uh, of post-secondary education. It sought to eliminate waste and unnecessary duplication and promoted innovation and responsiveness to student and societal needs. But CPEC was a budget casualty in 2011 when Governor Brown eliminated it from the state budget. The governor called it ineffective. And frankly, the governor was at least partly right in that uh, description, but not entirely so. There is another coordinating body, which, is, which was established in 1981, and that's the California Education Roundtable, which is a voluntary association of the chief executives of all of the state's educational system. That's been in existence now, as I said, since 1981, and still does exist. So we have the master plan, has it, and it's worked fairly well, I've been arguing. Has it been under stress? Well, let me begin. Um, there are many such stresses. Some of those stresses are structural. That involve the return of competition among the segments within uh, California. For example, recently, um, at least on an interim basis, several community colleges have been allowed to offer bachelor's degrees. Uh, and so undergraduate bachelor's degrees offered by community colleges is one way in which the master plan boundaries have been, have been modified recently. Another involves doctoral degrees in CSU campuses. Those of you who've been around a while will remember the war about 15 years ago between the University of California and the CSU system over the issue of whether or not the CSU would be allowed to offer the educational doctorate degree, the EDD degree. Well, it was something of a war, and it ended in victory for CSU, uh, which was ultimately allowed by the legislature to offer the EDD degree. 
Since then, the CSU system has been allowed to offer a number of other professional doctoral programs, such as, for example, the Doctor of Physical Therapy training. Now, that's a mixed bag because um, many of these professional doctoral programs are programs that UC is not necessarily ready or willing or able to actually support at the level that the state needs in terms of the number of graduates. So it, it actually does make sense for the CSU system to take on that responsibility. That responsibility is driven in part because national organizations, and I'll use physical therapists as an example, are now demanding a doctoral degree in order to gain a license in order to practice their profession. So if CSU wants to offer doctoral degrees, how should we do this? Should it be freely allowed? Should there be blanket approval at all CSUs? um, How do we limit this to a few campuses, or should it be limited? Might we need some market analysis to, to show the actual need for a doctoral degree before we actually jump in and allow them to, to have it? Those are interesting questions, and those are questions which are being asked right now. But one of the biggest stresses for the master plan has been, as it was actually mentioned earlier, it's funding, it's dollars. And those dollars are both capital and operating expenses for all three segments of public higher education. The state general fund spending per UC student has been steadily dropping since the time of the master plan, and precipitously so in the last 30 years. The per student funding in 1960 adjusted to today's dollars, and everything I quote will be adjusted to today's dollars, was roughly $25,800 per student at UC. By the mid-1970s, that number had dropped, and the funding per full-time student was slightly more than $23,000. Well, today, we're now at about $13,600 per student, according to the Public Policy Institute of California. I've tried to take my figures from from an independent source. CSU funding per student has also fallen by about 25% since the mid-1970s, from slightly more than $11,000 per student to slightly less than $9,000 per student today. So both systems have seen significant drops. In UC's case, maybe 40 or 45% since the 70s, In CSU's case, 25% drop since the 70s. And this despite the fact that state investment makes financial sense. According to the most recent report on UC's economic impact, every dollar that California taxpayers invest in UC and its students results in $9.80 in gross state product and $13.80 in overall economic impact. So even if you didn't care about students, if all you cared about was the economy, investing in UC is still a good investment for the state. Now, to be intellectually honest, when I talk about the drop in state funding, I should mention the state's support of Cal Grants, because that is an investment in higher education. Reducing some of the sting of tuition, which partially offsets the... uh, State's disinvestment 
In fact, Cal Grants are the largest source of California state-funded student financial aid. More than $12,000 per year is available to qualifying students under Cal Grants. So that is a significant state investment, and I don't, don't mean to ignore it. But even despite the advent of Cal Grants, um, the financial numbers that I gave before of state support for the university still remain true. I mentioned operating expense struggles. Well, there's also capital and maintenance issues at the university. All, in fact, at all three systems of public higher education. In fact, those systems now bear the burden of most capital construction and maintenance. California legislators in June of this year approved $70 million for deferred maintenance for UC and for CSU. It sounds generous, but the systems have a combined deferred maintenance backlog, which tops about $8 billion. So in that framework, thinking about it relative to the $8 billion backlog, $70 million doesn't sound quite so generous. And this is only maintenance for academic structures. It doesn't include ma uh, medical centers or campus housing. Meanwhile, nearly 60% of UC space is at least 30 years old. The UC system's capital needs today total almost $28 billion. The story isn't much better at CSU. More than half of CSU's space is over 40 years old, and its facilities, facility needs surpass $14 billion today. So the community colleges are a different story. They have capital needs as well, but they have the ability to go to local voters and pass local bond measures, which neither UC nor CSU has. In addition, um, even though it's been, it's, even though UC and CSU have not been the beneficiaries of a state bond measure since 2006, two years ago the state did pass a K through 14 bond measure, which provided some facility funding for the community colleges. So they're in somewhat better shape than the UCs, but I don't want to paint too bright a picture for them. What about pensions? Well, the state still supports the pension system of the CSU system, but that's not the case for UC. The state no longer provides funding to uh, continue the UC's pension system. It has made occasional one-time contributions to the UC pension system in the last few years, but that is not a full-time ongoing commitment. Meanwhile, now let me turn to the dirty word, tuition. Meanwhile, as state funding has decreased, tuition has increased more than 200% in UC and over 175% in CSU since the year 2000. Let me remind you again, in 1960, when the master plan came into being, tuition was free. There was no tuition. There was an incidental fee to cover non-instructional costs, such as laboratories, health, and athletics. Well, today, students still pay those fees, those uh, uh, non-instructional fees. And they pay more of them, by the way, both on the campus and statewide. But now they also pay tuition. Resident tuition at UC is now roughly 
$12,000 annually, plus an additional nearly $2,500 in system and campus fees. The story isn't much better at CSU. At CSU, tuition is $5,700 today, plus about $1,500 in student fees. And keep in mind, just remember, these numbers don't include housing. They don't include meals. And that explains why the so-called student, uh, starving student cliché is no longer a cliché. We have on-campus food banks throughout the UC system. Every campus at UC has an on-campus food bank. Can you imagine what the creators of the master plan, who are committed to access and opportunity, would think about that? Just imagine. Costs have also risen at the community colleges. They are not immune to that. Um, units at the community college are now $46 each, up from $11 in the year 2000. The average annual tuition for full-time students at a community college is about $1,100. Another issue that's been of stress, particularly recently, is, is non-resident students. Not surprisingly, campuses have looked to boost their non-resident student populations. In the case of UC, those students pay an additional $29,000 a year in tuition. $29,000 a year. So UC has more than quadrupled its non-resident undergraduate population in the past 20 years. And UC now enrolls more than 37,000 non-resident students. At CSU, a full-time non-resident student pays an additional $4,700 per semester. CSU's non-resident numbers have risen alongside that supplemental tuition number. In the past five years, in the past five years alone, just five years, CSU's total number of non-resident students has jumped by nearly 10,000 to its current number of 28,000 non-resident students. Even the California community colleges charge non-resident rates, usually an additional $100 per unit. Meanwhile, the state, which is under fire for the impression that Californians are being kept from UC campuses by increasing numbers of non-resident students is now looking to limit non-resident enrollments. And as I think most of you in this room know, last year the Board of Regents, under pressure from the state legislature, did indeed impose limits on the number of non-resident students that California campuses can admit. So the master plan has not been perfect. It has not been immune from various stresses. So has it adapted over time? And there's a long story there, which I won't, won't uh, bore you with. But there have been a number of fixes that have been tried to the master plan over the years. A number of revisions have been attempted, but none of them have really ha had the force of law, and none of them have made major changes in the way that we think about the master plan. That may be changing now, because currently there is a multi-year effort underway to uh, look again at the master plan, 
through a committee of the legislature chaired by Assemblyman Mark Berman. And this may offer us a good opportunity to seriously consider more effective long-term changes to the master plan and how we think about it. And the advantage of this new revision of the master plan might be that by taking some time to do it, by taking more than one year, by allowing it to be a multi-year effort, it's possible that something reasonable might, might emerge from that. It allows us to look at some of the assumptions that went into the initial versions of the master plan and see if those assumptions have changed and how we might res respond to those changes and assumptions. And we must, we have to acknowledge and we have to address that we're facing a very different political and economic environment today than we faced back in 1960. As, this, as the current effort began last year, I assembled a group representing each of the four segments of higher education. Um, uh, besides myself, and the goal was to work with Assemblyman Berman, who I know quite well. Um, that group, besides myself, includes Father Michael Eng, the president of Santa Clara University, uh, Mary Papazian, the president of San Jose State University, and Judy Minor, the chancellor of the Foothill De Anza Community College District. And we've been working uh, with uh, Assemblyman Berman to try to define some of the issues that might be worth uh, examining more carefully and thinking about some of the changes that we might envision for the future of the master plan because there are significant challenges ahead of us. California is projected to grow from 40 million residents today to 49 million residents by the year 2040. In fact, a 2015 study by the Public Policy Institute of California predicts a shortfall of about 1.1 million college graduates by the year 2030. Let me just repeat that. By the year 2030, they predict that California will need more than a million more college graduates than we are currently on a pathway to get. There is no clear funding model for the system to grow with the needs of California, and more importantly, to grow while maintaining educational excellence. In addition, there are substantial student demographic changes which challenge all three systems of public higher education. We have far more students today from traditionally underrepresented communities than we had when the master plan was first adopted. Oops. In 1960, California's 18 to 24-year-olds were 79% white, and you can read the rest of the numbers on, on this table, but today, the demographics, the ethnic demographics of California population is very different, as you see here. And that does represent some challenges for systems of higher education. At the undergraduate level, 42% of UC students are, first, are the first generation in their families to attend college. The numbers are strong throughout the entire California public education system. It isn't just UC. The numbers are 33% at CSU and 40% in the community colleges. 38% of UC students are Pell Grant eligible. Now just think about that for a moment. Pell, to be eligible for Pell Grants, you need to be among the lowest economic sector of society. 
And that, so those students come from the very lowest income families in our society. But 38% of our undergraduate population at UC are Pell Grant eligible. Let's compare that to other universities. For example, two other large public universities. At the University of Illinois, the number is 22%. At the University of Washington, it's 19%. So other major public universities seem to have about half the percentage of Pell Grant students that, than UC. Most Ivy League schools are in the low to mid-teens in terms of the percent of Pell Grant students that they enroll. In fact, there are four UC campuses which individually, just by themselves, enroll more Pell Grant students than all of the Ivy League universities combined. That's an amazing statistic. Other systems may talk about creating educational opportunity and access, but UC and the CSUs and the community colleges really do walk that walk. So with underrepresented students, first-generation students, and low-income students, they all tend to require more support and services than do their counterparts. I've alluded to, I've mentioned this before, but I'll say, mention again, the huge capital challenges for both UC and CSU going forward. Many campus facilities were substantially built in the years after the master plan. That was more than a half a century ago. And these classrooms and dorms and resident halls are reaching the end of their real lifetimes. And today's seismic building requirements are also significantly more expensive than previously. There has not been a state bond measure to support UC or CSU to help finance new classrooms and laboratory construction since the year 2006, which seems ages ago. As I said before, the community colleges do have alternative forms of capital funding, but they too face challenges. How do we do it? Well, at Merced, to build UC Merced, the regents had to adopt a process called Merced 2020, which involved a public-private partnership in which a single private developer designs, builds, operates, and maintains major building systems and partly finances the entire project under a single contract. That was useful and necessary to build up Merced, the fastest-growing UC campus. But such a model has great elements of risk because basically those loans are, are, are supported by income that we get from the state and from tuition, very different than the model by which UC and CSU were originally built. In recent years, UC has very successfully, and, and currently CSU is beginning to construct buildings based upon savings from refinancing prior state bonds. It's like refinancing your house, the mortgage on your house. It's a great option, and it's given us the ability to build a number of buildings, but it's nowhere near the number of buildings that a bond measure would have allowed. And furthermore, it's just like refinancing the mortgage on your house, eventually the benefits run out and you get no more, and we're at about that stage at UC. Another challenge is the, either the reality or at least the, the un, unquestioning belief in the future of online education. Despite the great hope that many had for online education, it has not served to be, it has not proven to be the magic bullet that many thought it might be. Because we now do research that actually evaluates how well it does. 
it does have benefits for students. And I don't mean to minimize them. In many cases, online education can be a great uh, uh, addition for students. It can be a great supplement for UC or CSU students. It allows them, for example, to get the classes they need if they can't enroll in an otherwise over-enrolled classes. But there are questions that the master plan has to address. Should these be offered? Should, the edu should online education be offered at all of the UC, CSU, and community college uh, colleges within the state? In fact, I point out to you that in last year's budget, the state adopted funding or, or uh, created funding to fund an online community college. And we will see how well that does or doesn't work. So there's a number of things that will be on the table as we think about the future of the master plan. Um, I can't possibly explore all of them. I want to mention a few of them. But I know that my colleagues on the panel will be discussing a number of these as we go forward tonight. So um, they will talk in much greater detail. One issue that CSU con consistently raises is the role of research at CSU. Faculty at CSU have no component of research as a part of their job description, even though many CSU faculty conduct world-class research. That's a point of some contention and may be something that a new master plan should address. There are also those within CSU who argue that CSU should offer doctoral degrees and, in fact, should even offer PhD degrees. Well, um, Right now, various CSUs and UCs offer joint doctoral degrees, particularly UC San Diego and San Diego State have a number of them. Um, uh, and I think that those are, are, are very good, but th there will be CSUs who will argue that they are good enough to offer doctoral degrees on their own. And I think that will be a challenge for the master plan. One could consider multi-year transitions. Just as we have transfer between community colleges and UC and CSU, we could imagine transitions after a bachelor's degree, someone going from UC or CSU to getting a master's degree and, 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 a, and an eligibility requirement for master's programs in the various campuses. Another question is whether or not we should permanently allow, make permanent the program to allow community colleges to offer some baccalaureate degrees. I think the key issue there is whether those degrees are offered elsewhere within public higher education in California. If the answer to that question is no, and if there is a need, that might be a very good thing to do. But somebody needs to decide that. Somebody needs to actually make those decisions of which ones are appropriate and which ones are not. Are the admissions ratios right? You know, the 12.5%, 33% ratios. Should we be open to discussion about changing those numbers? Should we be talking less about enrollment? I mean, w the way we frame the three systems is we talk about enrollment numbers. But in fact, what matters to the state of California is not really how many students are enrolled. Well, it may matter to a legislator who gets angry letters from their constituents. But the real issue is how many degrees do we produce and how efficiently do we produce those degrees? What are our graduation rates? How efficiently do we move students through the system so that they actually get degrees in a reasonable period of time? And another key question involves oversight and coordination, which I mentioned before. Right now, the California Education Roundtable, which does exist, involves the leadership of all four segments of higher education, does meet on a 
regular basis, but it doesn't really do a very public and, and clear job of coordinating the systems yet. CPEC, which I mentioned earlier, had issues, but I just want to remind you that the California Post-Secondary Education Commission did do some very useful things for California. It was an independent body, and they did an independent uh, assessment of how well UC and CSU were meeting the 12.5% and 33% ratios. And periodically, they would do a study, and at the res- after those studies, UC and C- well, UC at least, if not CSU, would adjust our admissions criteria to uh, bring that number back to 12.5%. And having that done by an independent body made a certain amount of sense. Even more importantly, they established certain norms for for higher education in California. For example, they established norms for laboratory space and office space and classrooms for each of the uh, systems. And, And because they were an independent commission, their numbers, their norms really had a weight and a gravitas that would not necessarily accrue if they were created by the systems themselves. So um, I think CPEC did play some important work. And I myself have been supportive of the idea of, of recreating some kind of a commission to replace CPEC going forward. Hopefully a body that would work much more closely with the California Education Roundtable. I would love to see those two bodies actually work in concert with one another. There has been, by the way, legislation offered in each of the last two sessions of the legislature to establish a new uh, CPEC, uh, say, grandchild. Um, Both times that legislation was vetoed by Governor Brown. Um, uh, The legislation itself was, in my view, not really um, as good as it could have been. Um, But it... uh, I, I, I harbor some hopes, and I have given some feedback to the author of that legislation, and I do harbor some hopes that when it's reintroduced next year, which almost certainly will be uh, because of the likelihood that a, that a new governor, probably Newsom, will sign it, um, uh, I'm hoping that the legislation will be different than the legislation that passed out each of the last two years. There are also challenges of uniformity. I mean, think about the UC system. There are differences among the campuses at UC, but UC is a remarkably homogeneous system. We maintain similar criteria for advancement. We try to maintain high quality. And although I'm not claiming all of the UC campuses are the same, I certainly am not saying that, I would point out to you that except for Merced, which is brand new, all of the other campuses are within the top 100 universities in the, in the nation, By I think, And I think that represents something quite amazing for a system with as many campuses as ours. But that's not true of the CSU system. The CSU system varies widely in terms of graduation rates, for example. It varies widely in terms of the quality of the campuses. Some campuses, and I'm picking on San Diego State, are are really strong research campuses, um, almost, almost at a UC level in some cases. Um, on the other hand, there are other CSUs which would be laughable to say, I won't mention them, who would be almost laughable to put in the same category, for example, as San Diego State. But that's true of the community colleges as well. There's huge variations within the community colleges. Let me remind you that there are 72 community college districts. 
that hey, and those districts have 114 community colleges. So the community colleges, some of them are gathered together into districts, and there's 72 of those districts and 114 colleges. To me, without really thinking about it deeply, those numbers are somewhat disturbing because um, uh, that strikes me as fundamentally inefficient to have 72 different distinct districts in California. Um, I think it's also disturbing in terms of the mission because I want to remind you that the community, each community college has a large number of missions that it has to fulfill. And um, they have to prepare students to transfer. They have to do vocational training. They have to do lifelong learning. And it's hard to do it all. And so it makes me wonder whether or not there should be more specialization within the community colleges as well in order to be more efficient. Um, I think that's a, a reasonable question to ask. And um, whether that question will have traction is another matter. But I think it's a reasonable question. And maybe even most importantly, in terms of ways forward, we need a new funding approach. We need a new funding model for higher education. I, I believe that that funding model has to be generous. Of course, I want it to be generous because we really do want to provide that opportunity for our students in California. But even just as important as generous is predictable. The, the rises and falls of UC funding and of CSU funding over the last couple of decades have been precipitous. Let me remind you that during the, the Great Recession in 2009, in one year, in one year alone, the drop in UC funding from the state was equal to the total state budget of UC Santa Cruz plus UC Santa Barbara plus UCLA. That was one year's cut in funding. That is not predictable funding. There are other questions as well. What are the right ratios for transfer? And how do, should it be a two-to-one ratio of transfers to frosh, I mean, frosh to transfer admissions? Um, that's the number that's currently being touted. Should that number be applied to each individually to every UC campus, for example? Or should it be a system-wide number? And how do we handle transfer students? Should there be more transfer guarantees? Should we do more to ease the pathway from community colleges to UC and to CSU? And what about financial aid models? I mean, I don't have to remind you that students today face rising debt upon graduation. Now, I think UC and CSU have very good records in terms of the total amount of debt that their students graduate with. But nevertheless, they do graduate in debt, and that debt is rising. Should we do something about that? Should we have revisions to the master plan or guarantees that serve to reduce or eliminate the debt that students graduate from college with so that they can start on their next life or the next phase of their life debt-free and able to pursue whatever dreams they want? And then there is the awkward question of what do we do about tuition? For both UC and CSU, and I guess the community colleges as well, tuition has basically followed state funding. As state funding has gone up, tuition hasn't risen or might even have fallen. But when, when state funding drops, tuition goes up. How do we deal with that? What is, the, what is the correct way to do that? We fight that battle every year at UC and CSU. And I'm getting old enough that I'm getting tired of fighting that same battle every year. 
we need to think this through and, and come up with a system that doesn't require an annual fight, but w- which is planned. Some people think about cohort tuitions, that is locking in tuition when a student enters the university so that they're guaranteed to pay the same tuition or a tuition that rises by only, say, 3% every year until they graduate. That's an idea that some universities around the country have adopted. It does have risk, though, because the risk is that if the state funding does drop and tuition needs to go up more, that would fall primarily on entering frosh. And the increase in tuition for entering frosh would be so much higher if we had cohort guarantees. Others have proposed that people pay tuition after they graduate through a tax on their income. I think that would be very difficult to implement, but it's at least something that could be considered. And then there is the awkward question, which has been discussed within at least the UC system for years, and I think also within CSU, of differential tuition. And differential tuition, when it's discussed, can take many forms. For example, some have advocated for differential tuition based upon the field or the major that a student has. So, for example, engineering costs more to educate an engineering student, so the argument goes. Therefore, we should charge higher tuition for engineering. The counter-argument to that, however, is that we want to encourage first-generation students, low-income students, etc., to go into engineering. We don't want to deter them from pursuing those particular majors based upon some artificial financial limitation. So um, that's a major drawback of that form of differential tuition. Others have argued for differential tuition by campus, arguing that, for example, Berkeley can afford to charge more than some of the other campuses. And again, that are, in a system of higher education that tries to maintain uniformity, that's a dangerous road to go on. Others have argued for differential tuition for non-resident students, which I think is actually maybe a more reasonable approach to take if you're going to go down that road. But again, those are questions that we need to grapple with as we go forward. We also need to grapple with the question of should there be new campuses? As the state's population increases, there is going to be, believe it or not, a limitation to what all of the UC campuses and all of the CSU campuses can enroll. Should we be thinking about new campuses? Seems like a crazy question right now. But think about it. It took 12 years between the decision to establish the Merced campus and the opening of the Merced campus. 12 years. If this is a legitimate question to ask, we need to be asking that question now, not when we actually need the the space for those students. And then there's another question about the independence. I have not talked a lot about the independent colleges and universities in California, but they are an important part of the master plan. They do educate a significant percentage of California students. And we need to be asking questions about their capacity and how they could better integrate with the public sectors of higher education in California. So let me bring this talk to a conclusion. Um, you know, our mandate from the state is to provide access to any student who would benefit, benefit from education, irregardless of their ability to pay for that education. And unless there are substantial, unexpected demographic changes, UC is going to need to grow at a similar rate as in the past in order to meet its social contract. And that's particularly important if California hopes to mitigate growing income inequality as well as expand access to underrepresented minorities within the state of California. 
the critical question facing us is how in the world do we continue to do that given the current challenges? How do we overcome some of the challenges that I mentioned earlier? I see tremendous opportunity for renewed collaboration among lawmakers, local communities, public higher education, and the business sector, because I think bringing them in would be most fruitful, to update and enhance the state's network of colleges and universities for the 21st century. But that chapter is yet to be written. Thank you. So thank you, George. You've given us, uh, given, given us a lot to think about. I teach um, Foundations of American Higher Education at UCLA to master's and doctoral students. And we actually discuss state policy on Tuesday. So I want to say there's two things that distinguishes California from the rest of the United States in terms of state policy. The first is uh, many states have a statewide coordinating board an actual body that's the intermediary between the state and the systems of higher education. Um, and we have the master plan, which is distinct. The other is uh, we have constitutional independence, the university does. I don't think there's another state that has their university. There may be one, but I, I cannot find another state that has that uh, independence guaranteed to the university in the state constitution, though the legislators often threaten to remove that independence uh, from time to time. Uh, so I want to talk about uh, the master plan and UC autonomy. Oh, by the way, I do want to say that if the next governor wishes to uh, develop a statewide coordinating board, that we nominate George Blumenthal to lead that body. <laughs> You gave us a great set, an agenda for a statewide coordinating board, not simply a council, uh, but actually a statewide coordinating board, if that would be in the cards. We don't know. But I also want to talk about eligibility as a social construct, because it is within our purview to determine what talent looks like and how we identify it and who we enroll. So I want to preface my comments by just saying that uh, all of what I have to say comes from my experience on boards, interactions in Senate Council, and also in Assembly. And I was always aware of and in awe of how serious faculty had taken their role in serving California's diverse populations and the public good. I truly appreciated the interaction with faculty across the systems unified in this aim to do the best by students, parents, and communities. Having just come from 12 years at the University of Michigan and involvement in the affirmative action case that concluded with the Supreme Court decision in 2003, I arrived at UCLA in 2004 and was quickly recruited at the Chancellor's welcoming reception by academic Senate members to serve on boards. Now, I thought, I don't have any committees, so sure, I'll serve, not knowing what I was getting into. Um, the complexity of the University of California admissions and the documents and the current problems um, of the state uh, seemed overwhelming at first. 
I don't think I could have been as helpful in reforming undergraduate admissions without serving on boards for six years. And under the tutelage of what I call the UC Mod Squad, which was Michael Brown from Santa Barbara, Mary Krogan from San Francisco, and Mark Rashid from UC Davis. That is, the crafting of our current undergraduate admissions process really began when Michael Brown was chair of BORS with an energetic group of thinkers from across the system that were attempting to respond to the impact of uh, the voter referendum uh, 2009. Deciding we had to do something to devise a plan that fostered UC autonomy and identifying talent in the context of continuing inequality in schools and communities. The extensive use of simulation studies under the guidance of Sam Agronau, who's now no longer with us, um, that followed the, the faculty need to provide thorough and convincing evidence-based recommendations for adoption, allowed campus to choose students under a new conception of eligibility. Determining talent and eligibility has always been within UC autonomous purview, including in the master plan, especially to that of the faculty sentiment in determining whom to admit, what to teach, and who graduates in specific degree programs. So in initial meetings about eligibility in 2004, I recall Boers had once again tweaked eligibility by raising the GPA in the formula. This then allowed for reassessment of who was eligible and projections based on CPEC's analysis of demand. As a committee, we grew tired of simply moving the bar on students just as high school graduates became increasingly diverse, in essence telling students, last year you, will el you were eligible, now this year you are not. And moreover, the formula obscured actual student demand. Equally problematic in the eligibility definition was the use of three achievement tests required in addition to the SAT and ACT that no other public system in the country used for admission. Studies allowed us to show extremely excellent students would have been otherwise eligible were it not for these tests. Nowhere in the master plan has it ever stated how UC must determine eligibility, nor what tests to use. Thus, eligibility was our own social construction that rigidly limited institutional autonomy to make decisions about the talent or the kinds of students we wish to enroll and to determine where a student could actually attend. Times had changed. We had much more information about California high schools and student contexts to make better decisions, making the achievement tests no longer necessary. Voter referendum under 209 had created constraints in review processes and UC had already responded by broadening our analysis of applicants using comprehensive review, though an actual BOR study had shown that we were not one campus, but nine campuses when it came to admissions criteria, making it difficult for students to understand. Both an active president, Udoff, and specific regents also wished the faculty to move on a policy decision regarding both processes across the campuses and criteria that would allow UC to take a proactive approach that would better serve California's diverse populations. Now, I'm leaving a lot of stories and specific interchanges between those groups of people, uh, but it made, it made life interesting every Friday, let's put it that way. So, Boers and Senate reconstructed eligibility using the best tools available to us. 
and were able to predict a number of things that actually happened. First, we knew that applications would increase and every campus would become more selective. As a result of removal of the achievement test, huge numbers of applications indicated that such tests served as a filter on student demand more than it probably told us about differences between applicants in academic achievement. Second, the quality of students would increase. The original master plan had stated that 2.4 was the GPA was necessary for admission to UC. Boers in 2010 approved 2.8, and in reality, students admitted via eligibility in the local context had already greatly exceeded the GPA requirements. The average entering GPA is 3.56 for Merced and 3.87 for Berkeley, according to a recent rep search. So in the era of holistic review that takes into account many other factors such as high school context, unusual circumstances, overcoming adversity and accomplishments in leadership, arts, and athletics, academic indicators remain strong. We continue to identify the most talented using multiple criteria. As campuses become more selective, academics alone will not ensure admission since personal and contextual accomplishments are key. This is the case for most selective private institutions in the country. Now I want to talk a little bit about admissions by exception, which I'm not sure if anybody talks about at all anymore, but it was historically the way that underrepresented groups were admitted to UC for many years. Admissions by exception allows additional discretion to campuses for special cases, or as bars had hoped, that campuses would experiment with admissions using the exception policy for refining criteria. Their master plan in 1960 states that no more than 2% of all students admitted in a system, um, and then all existing policy documents from the regents and boards indicate it is 6% of enrolled freshmen who may be admitted by A by E. In practice, no single campus used more than 2%, and only one campus actually experimented with 6% in admissions. In short, this A by E is also an important historic feature of UC admissions, that predates the master plan and, in fact, is in founding documents of the university. And it was meant to give the university autonomy in determining eligibility. Forms of talent are way contextual factors that make specific students exceptional in their contribution to UC campus and or as graduates. Today, A by E is no longer discussed because the eligibility construct has evolved and such factors have made students exceptions are reviewed as part of the holistic review processes, context, personal accomplishment, overcoming observe, uh, adverse, adversity, and that's one reason I think we have such a high proportion of Pell Grant recipients today as a result of that. The point is really is that UC has always had discretion to identify talent and should continue to do so in ways that serve the public good, the state's needs, and its central purposes as a world-class university we can still accommodate the top high school graduates that are determined to be the most talented in the state within our capacity. Anytime campuses are at capacity, they have become more selective. Only about 1% of students guaranteed admission actually elected to attend a UC campus. They did not want to attend. The guarantee of admission was no longer true more than a decade ago. It was, a good, it was good public messaging, but it was outdated the, mo the moment most UC campuses became selective. What we need at this turning point is to really think about what constitutes a real 
guarantee in the next policy window of a new governor and good financial standing. We need to begin to think about what would constitute a real, a real guarantee. Free admission in the first year, first two years, uh, rigorous and solid transfer pathways, faster links, or rather allowing uh, credits for uh, college credits for high school, um, AP classes, dual enrollment. There are many ways in which we can begin to think differently. I think the policy window is important. We are in good financial health so far, and I think the new governor may have a variety of um, windows open for understanding uh, all the kinds of things that we may be interested in doing. I think we're at a turning point for doing some key transformative work. Okay, I want to uh, thank the Senate leadership for organizing this meeting and for inviting me. And thank you, George, for a wonderful presentation. My comments will be based upon experiences I had in my Senate roles. George and Sylvia have addressed access to UC, and I know Judd will touch on this as well. As all board's chairs know, admissions is one of the most public faces of UC. I want to briefly comment on non-resident enrollment, transfer, and A to G, and then I have a few short remarks about UC's unique position within the master plan. Non-resident enrollment is a $500 million issue. George addressed the tuition enrollment numbers, and my guess is that the surge in enrollment over the past six years resulted in an increased funding by this order of magnitude. These resources are vitally needed to support undergraduate education. For the record, I was the board's chair who led the discussion that resulted in the compare favorably rule for transfer admission that the state auditor was so incensed about a few years back. What she missed was that Boers adopted the change with the goal of preventing a situation where it appeared UC was admitting non-residents ahead of stronger resident applicants. There are dozens of details and nuances I cannot detail here, but the context is important. During these years, Boers worked with President Udolph and Regent Island to bring single-score holistic review to a majority of the campuses. We updated comprehensive review and implemented the 9 by 9 guarantee to promote diversity, as Sylvia discussed. Although previous board's members had expressed a desire to limit non-resident numbers, it was clear that non-resident tuition could mitigate the funding problems. Moreover, the campus admission directors informed boards that their campuses had independent plans for increased non-resident enrollment. This presented a serious master plan conundrum for Boers, and Compare Favorably emerged as an attempt to stabilize the situation. A key point is the following. Throughout this period of swirling admission changes, UC admission was offered to over 12.5% of California high school graduates. Yes, the eventual enrollments were roughly in the 8% range as they had been for years, and many in the public were pissed off about their students not being admitted to their favorite selective campus. But the non-residents were not the problem, as the auditor argued. They contribute greatly to UC, and selectivity had been high at many campuses for quite some time. We must not lose sight 
that UC has continued to ensure undergraduate opportunity that was available at the master plan targeted numbers throughout a financial crisis. Regarding transfer students, this is only a $50 million issue. Last year, the governor withheld $50 million from UC because two campuses didn't meet their targets of one transfer for each two freshman admits. Fortunately, the funds did arrive by year's end. Boers devoted much of 2010 to 2012 to an examination of transfer student enrollment and success. In June of 2012, the Senate regulations were amended to create UC transfer pathways and to include community college transfer degrees as a pathway. We know that properly paired transfer students succeed wonderfully at UC and we sought to clarify the best routes. Last spring, President Napolitano, through Senate Chair White, issued a missive to the Senate to engage in promoting transfer success. In my department, transfer numbers over the past three years have more than doubled. And this year, we doubled the size of two special courses for transfers that we know work wonderfully. But in spite of this growth, the number of transfer students that will complete degrees in my department will remain flat. Only half of our 95 transfer admits will be ready to enroll in any upper division courses this year. Only six had academic records enabling them to take an upper division course upon arrival, and 15 were not able to enroll in a math course, some of them failing the placement test for the first quarter of calculus. Each UC campus has a different applicant pool for transfers, and there is a serious preparation gap, largely due to inadequate advising and course availability. Interesting, in 2012, Governor Brown vetoed legislation that would have had the legislative analysts set metrics for higher education. George, you might have referred to that. And in 2011, he vetoed a K-12 accountability bill saying, and I quote, adding more speedometers to a broken car won't turn it into a high-performance machine. <laughs> That's your wisdom from Jerry Brown for the evening. But he missed this point in 2017 with the transfer mandates. UC is already a high-performing institution that should not be compromised by rigid numerical metrics, as politicians have been doing nationally in K-12 for some time. We need to watch out for this across domains as the master plan is discussed. Now, A to G is a minutia with a huge impact that is mostly off the radar outside of K-12. ADG courses are those the UC Senate sets as requirements for freshman UC and CSU admission. If you're familiar with the high school curriculum, you know that ADG is a big deal. Unlike any other university in the nation, UC reviews courses, and under Bohr's guidance, OP staff approve or reject classes from California high schools. The ADG requirements press all schools to establish a full complement of rigorous courses. We learned 15 years ago at UCSB through our partnership schools that one of the most important steps we could take to increase UC applications and enrollment from low-income areas was to add a counselor to the school staff whose job was A to G course information and education for the students. We know that the existence of Area F which is visual and performing arts, has had a profound impact 
for without it, many theater, art, and music performance classes would have fallen prey to a financial axe. While I was on Boers, we twice set up mechanisms to certify online courses for A to G. And as Amy Dore knows, if you want to create an emotional Senate conversation, just raise the issue of online education. <laughs> Demands are made of UC through A to G. In response, UC has sponsored institutes to help secondary teachers develop career technical education courses that meet A to G. Legislators have drafted legislation to try to force computer literacy and other topics into A to G. And because UC aligned A to G with the Common Core, it prevented the State Board of Education from facing a debacle that might have otherwise erupted. I hope that A to G is considered when the master plan is discussed. For when UC acts on A to G, schools start jumping through hoops. We need to ensure that we attained intended consequences while unintended consequences are mitigated. A to G affects the lives of all high school students in California more than most of us recognize. And I, in my own conversations, refer to A to G as part of the unwritten master plan. As George has articulated, the master plan is an ambitious and successful organizing scheme with UC playing a special role. Herein lies a serious challenge that I became acutely aware of is my Senate Vice Chair and Chair roles. Educating the public, including UC regents, about the role of, that scholarly achievements, creative accomplishments, and research play in defining UC. In the Senate, we understand the contributions our colleagues make in the arts, the humanities, the social sciences, science, technology, and applications. But more often, the broad picture of scholarship is lost on our politicians who think only about our teaching or research from a very limited point of view. When you interact with non-UC folks about our mission and the master plan, please strive to present our creative accomplishments in their full breadth, not simply the flashy topic of the moment, because in the long run, that benefits all of us. To be sure, I've seen many of us handle this well, but I also have seen many opportunities missed in this regard. This may sound simplistic, but we cannot afford to ignore it. Expanding on this, we also need to defend and promote the role of UC beyond the campuses. For example, if you're engaged in K-12, you know that the California subject matter projects play an important role in ongoing teacher professional development and also in strengthening our teacher education programs. George noted that the visibility of UC in healthcare is enormous, not just in research, but in providing services and education for medical professionals. UC's out there in agriculture, the national labs, and much, much more. All of this, I think, of as part of an unwritten master plan. And my hope is that as the master plan evolves, the UC roles in the off-campus arenas receive due consideration. Let me close by saying that the master plan and what I call the unwritten master plan are not only critical to our professional scholarship and that of our students, but also directly impacts all Californians, especially the young. Keep getting this message out. And thank you. It's Judd's turn, I think. Yeah. 
I'd like to begin by mentioning two aspects of the master plan that I think have been particular strengths for California and which are also unusual to California. One is the differentiation of mission among the three public sectors. That has gained the state much. Quality at the top level in all three sectors, cost efficiency because not everybody is trying to do everything, and it has presented a way of controlling appetites for the mission creep that we've been discussing. The other one that I think is a peculiar strength is the defined, very clear, and guaranteed access to the three sectors. That provides clear guidance to high school students, to families, and schools, and schools regarding curriculum. We have lost some of that over the years, but it has been very valuable in what it has created for the school system. The weaknesses that I see, many of them have been mentioned, but one that hasn't that I would like to stress is that I think transfer has great problems operationally, and any revision of the master plan should address that. There is about 80% attrition of incoming community college students who say they are interested in transfer, 80% to uh, attrition before they actually transfer. That is a big loss of people that is, uh, for, for many reasons, one is the inequality among uh, community colleges. Some do transfer well, many do not. And yet transfer is a very desirable goal for financial reasons. It's an economy for the families. It's an economy for the state. It gives the student an opportunity to try out uh, college education without committing fully to it. And I think that is important for moving even more towards serving all elements of the population. And the transfer, the would-be transfer students coming in are an exceedingly diverse clientele. I agree with George that the loss of CPEC is a major loss because it had the role of enforcing the master plan. And uh, while the cat's away, the mice will play, and they have been. And it also was a representation of higher education to the state government without it having any perceived agenda of its own, which George also mentioned. We need it back. The third thing that I think is a weakness is the extreme imbalance among the enrollments of the three sectors of higher education. That now stands at 67% in the community colleges, 20% CSU, 13% UC. When the master plan started in 1960, that was 40%, 30%, and 22%. That is a very large change. It has happened because the college, the percentage of the population that goes to college has increased greatly over the years since 1960, but the 12.5% and the 33% have not increased, and therefore those students have gone to the community colleges. That distribution of enrollments does not equate to the workforce needs of the state, as identified by the Public Policy Institute of California and others. 
Also, the higher ratio, the much higher ratio now of vocational students to transfer students drowns out transfer within many community colleges. What would I do in addition to um, renovating or resuscitating CPEC? I first of all think it politically very important to evolve the master plan rather than rewrite it. You see would be a big loser because of the politics of the situation in a de novo writing of the master plan. I think we should greatly increase and improve tri-sector coordinated counseling for the transfer process. I would urge that the state implement income contingent loans. I'm not going to take the time to explain what they are, but they are something that have been used very successfully for decades in Australia, New Zealand, and UK, the UK. And what they do is shift the burden of payment for a college, from a, for a college education from the family of the student or the student themselves before they have an income, shifts it to the income made by the student because of the uh, gaining of the higher education with limits on what the income has to be before they have to repay. It balances the books and it has worked in these other countries. Elements of it were tried during the Obama administration. They are not being encouraged during this administration. Oregon has also tried it. I'd also like to bring back a recommendation from 2007 by a meeting of 22 ex-chancellors. If you can imagine what a meeting of 22 ex-chancellors would look like. Uh, that is to shift what the state funding is used for. Their urging was to, that they should equate state funding to financial aid for state resident students. That is what the state funding would be for. It has been done at Miami University of Ohio and uh, worked quite well. What it, it gives a political gain in that you're arguing to the state for more funding for the clear and obvious sole reason of providing financial support for California residents going on to higher education. Finally, I'd try real hard to find a way to get the state funding to increase the 12.5% and the 33% because the state pays it. Thanks. I thank the panelists for their extraordinary powers of self-discipline under a tight uh, schedule. Um, I'd like to open it to you, but rules. First, a round of only questions to the panelists or to the speaker. No comments, and keep your questions to the point. No editorializing. You, we, if there's time after that, you may indulge in comments. Um, but first, you can direct them to any one panelist or to George, but I will then invite other panelists and George to comment if they would like to also. Questions? Yes. So Mary Krogan, Senate Chair, 0809, part of the Mod Squad, as Sylvia referred to us. Given what we went through in eligibility reform with Asian uh, law groups, lawyers, mm -hmm. thank you, organizations, Truly, the only word I can use is fighting against us on eligibility reform. 
what is your take on the Harvard trials taking place at this point? Because they are the exact same groups that fought us. We did not land in court, and Harvard has. Um, I think that uh, you're reminding me of all the work we did in the communities. uh, And I went to the Asian Pacific Legal Center and spoke with them. And the first thing they said, we're on the same side. And I said, yeah, you need to get your people together. (laughs) Uh, In other words, they realize there's a division within the Asian American community. Um, And all of our data showed that particular communities that were most underrepresented were going to benefit most from the reform and eligibility. What they didn't understand was because we were moving tests, they thought we were shifting the bar again or changing the bar again. And I tried to explain to them, any student could submit any amount of information. Additional test information is fine. A campus can consider it, but it shouldn't be required of every, everyone, in other words. And I think um, after it passed, the opposition died down because they realized they weren't losing in the reconstruction of eligibility, but could... could improve in some ways, and some of the communities that were underserved could be served. The Harvard case is very difficult because certainly it is the the institution of the country, and um, having done admissions at both Princeton and MIT, I can tell you that um, for a large part, the Asian American students uh, have, let's put it this way, when the admissions are done in private institutions as well, is that um, I'm trying to, try, trying to tell you things without telling you too much, but I might as well just say it. For example, three sport athletes got higher ranks than probably most other students. And so how many of us are three sport athletes, right? So there, there are some biases in the way the personal um, characteristics are distributed, right, are distributed. And so I could see Asian Americans very concerned about how some of the other criteria were being used. But for, for places like Harvard, Princeton, MIT, good students are a dime a dozen. You need to determine differences among applicants, and it's usually the personal, academic, extraordinary accomplishments that take people over the top. I see UC moving in that same direction, is that we have, we have a huge number of applicants. We're having extraordinary, our quality of students has increased at every single campus. And so we are using broader criteria to try to understand and bring in contextual factors, et cetera. So I don't know sure, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. They have a good number of scholars that are advising them. I talked on the phone with Harvard for a while as well, but they've chosen their people that are going to give uh, expert testimony. So we'll see how it plays out. Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, thanks, Barry, by the way, for identifying yourself. When you ask a question, it would be great if you would identify yourself. Yes. How can we balance international students versus... Oh, sorry. How do we balance uh, admitting 
international student versus educating our own domestic student, particularly underrepresented students. And I'm particularly thinking of those campuses like UC Santa Cruz or UC Riverside who take a lot of underrepresented students and are kind of struggling with taking those students and then trying to increase the number of international students in order to provide resources as some of the other campuses do. Thank you. I think it's one thing that's important to realize is that diversity, including worldwide diversity, is a very important component of education. And the thing I think we have not succeeded in doing with the state is identifying the extent to which the quality of education is an argument that goes in favor of um, both out-of-state and international students. I think it would be good to try to make that argument and get a comfort with a certain level of international students uh, and out-of-state students being a good thing educationally. I think to make the argument only through the financial aspects is starting behind the eight ball. I, I would agree completely, but it's also very simply the fact that the financial pressures brought this upon all of us, okay? And I think everybody, I think all the campuses are doing their very best to ensure, right, the, the access of, of resident applicants. But uh, when you look at the numbers, I mean, there's very little ch- choice, um, I wish I could uh, offer more than that, but uh, you know the, the the funding mechanism has to change. And I, I will say one thing: when 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 I w- I think I was vice chair of the system assistant because I have this memory of Bob Powell sitting next to me, and the issue of non-residents came up, and you know we're both sitting there kind of anxiously wondering what's going to happen, and Jerry Brown pipes up. He'd been kind of sitting back. Yeah, maybe you remember this. Uh, and he said, you know, I think it's a great idea, all the resources we're bringing in. And the regents, the regents shut up. So it had the blessing from a governor, and this was prior to his, his re-election at, at that point in time, it had a blessing from a governor who had brought some more money to... K-12 and higher ed, always according to his very constricted formulas, which I actually, he's always stuck with his same constricted formula. He's been, he's been honest. It's been stingy as hell, but he's been honest about it. But um, uh, I think that, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that just kind of hammered us into a corner where, frankly, I knew you're asking the right question and we don't even have an opportunity to try to answer it. And I just want to add two more points. First of all, I want to acknowledge the, under, the basis of your question, which is that some campuses are more able to accept mm-hmm. non-resident students and other campuses have higher numbers of first-generation or underrepresented students, and those two don't, are not the same set, sets of campuses. So it does lead to disparity within the system. On the, issue, the other point I would make is on the issue of disparity. The regents did something a couple of years ago that I really, really opposed, which was they established different limitations on non-resident student populations of different campuses. So far as I'm aware, this is the first time that the regents have ever adopted a policy which explicitly distinguishes among the campuses. 
And I view that and continue to view that as a very dangerous mm-hmm. precedent. It's one thing to set a policy. It's one thing to not like a policy. But to set a policy that explicitly distinguishes among the campuses, I think, is very dangerous in the long run. I'm glad you said that. Michael. but anybody can answer it. And it has to do with the 12.5%. And I know Judd knows that, that, uh, that, that uh, we declare 12.5% eligible, but the state only pays what it pays for. And it doesn't pay for the full 12.5%. So the question is, how do you believe uh, raising that, uh, uh, that, that uh, eligibility constriction uh, uh, would advantage the university? Well, it only advantages the university if he gets the money to right. go with it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and so that's a, a big quest that would have to be carried out. No, it's the state's workforce needs and the distribution between different levels of education. And when the Public Policy Institute made their projections, they were taking a UC education for what it is, a CSU education for what it is, and I don't think bachelor's degrees at community colleges are going to match that standard of education. Uh, The state's workforce needs call for greater numbers at CSU and UC. Yes. Judd, I think this is a follow-up, and I'm Michelle Whittingham, and I'm the Associate Vice Chancellor of Enrollment Management at UC Santa Cruz. And one of the things that comes to my mind is if the legislators realize by not adequately funding us for California, how many of our amazing students are going outside of the state and we're sending more to British Columbia and all over the U.S. and all over the world. So has that come into the equation yet? Thank you. Uh, any more questions? Any, any, sus- okay, one more, one more, one more question. Uh, Dan Simmons, UC Davis, I've had some long-term involvement with the Senate. Uh, th- this is for Judd. Um, you made Uh-oh. a comment in your presentation about an 80% in attrition rate with respect to students planning to transfer into UC. Are we making a mistake by putting too much emphasis on that uh, in the sense that maybe we should be thinking about more vocational kind of education in the state of California as well? We need automobile mechanics. We need construction workers. You know, I mean, we need to direct students in all kinds of employment besides uh, those employments that require a bachelor degree. so And it's true with the ADG, A through G requirements as well. Maybe we focus too many high school students on um, a, a four-year degree program as opposed to other kinds of other forms of education. Well, uh, the Public Policy Institute of California is the report I'm going on the basis of. And it's a study made of order, I think, five or six years ago as to what numbers of people of what level of education were needed by California uh, businesses, I think the year was 2040. And uh, the great shortcoming is with is for four-year degrees. Mm. So uh, we overproduce, if you will, at the uh, associate level, 
and uh, some of those take or try to take the jobs that are unfilled of four-year people. Of course, California has always had a lot of importation of bachelor's graduates from other yeah. states. I know the numbers from engineering for years ago, years ago, and it was about half of our engineers were coming from other states rather than being educated in-state, and it may still be close to that. But uh, no, I, I, my impression from looking at the transfer system throughout the state, all sorts of different community colleges, and this loss of students that's been shown in various studies. There are a lot of these students being lost because they weren't given the right advice, they weren't coached when to do what, and also at many community colleges it was just plain hard to find another transfer student. And uh, those are things that deter people who could have been good four-year degree graduates, and um, I think uh, that's a loss to the state. So I would like to try to lessen that attrition. Uh, if I could just amplify a bit, uh, I agree completely with Judd. Uh, boards for two years looked at transfer, and then President Napolitano came in, and she had a transfer task force. And one of the things that really struck me, both having chaired boards through those two years and then listening to that transfer task force, when we interviewed the successful transfers to UC and we asked them about the counseling and their advice, it was minimal. It is a huge hole. And, you know, if I had bumped into Jerry Brown, uh, said, yeah, please give the $50 million back to UC. But if you're not, take that $50 million, if you really want to use it, and have, and I think George mentioned this, uh, have a tripartite, have all of the systems teaming up on counseling. It is a serious hole. I can tell you half of our transfers into my department won't graduate. And I meet with them. I'm vice chair. And the reason is they never understood what they were getting into. And so when the legislature looks at this problem, they really got to dig in and say, what is the root cause? And it's true. The community colleges do marvelous things for students in career technical ed and all kinds of professions, and that should be strengthened and we should continue. But we also have to have some reality and really look at the problem and not just rely on magic formula. So that's my two cents. Uh, one more question. Thank you. Um, Mary Gilley, UC Irvine. Um, George, you talked about the early emphasis on quality and certainly access and affordability. It was always quality, access, and affordability. But when I was chair of the Senate and going to the Regents meetings and listening to Jerry Brown, it was access and affordability. Nobody cared about quality. When did that happen and why? <laughs> oh, goodness. I, I'm not ago. sure I can answer that question. Uh, I, I would certainly acknowledge what you said, and in fact... I heard Jerry Brown at Regents Meeting talk about quality in a negative sense. Too many professors doing, you know, staring at their navels, doing uh, unnecessary research. Um, so uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I, I guess I, I, trying to be more serious, I'm not sure that there was a moment when it disappeared, and I'm not even sure that it has disappeared. Um, because, but I think it, it's, it's hard to measure for a state legislator, for a state politician, 
And therefore, it's easier and more uh, normal to talk about access or affordability because access involves letters from your constituents. They don't write say, to say, we don't think UC is as good as it was when we were students. They never get those letters. They get letters saying, why can't my kid get into UC? And with regard to affordability, they meet with students or they meet with parents who are complaining that UC is no longer as affordable as it used to be. And we can debate whether it's affordable at all, but it's certainly not as affordable as it used to be. So those are measurable things. There, there's real metrics that you can use there. Now, of course, we have metrics of excellence. I talked about a few. We all know as academics what those metrics are, but they don't necessarily mean as much to legislators, to political leaders. And even if they do understand those metrics, they aren't as immediate. I mean, part of the fallacy of the argument that I was making earlier was in terms of the benefit of UC and CSU and the community colleges to the state's economy, part of the fallacy is those are long-term benefits. If your horizon is one year or two years or the next election, you'll have a very different attitude toward quality than the attitude that you would have if your horizon is 20 years or 30 years and you try to leave a legacy for your successors to have a better state economy, to have a better education, educated population of the state. So I don't think quality has disappeared. I just think it gets left behind in, in the heat of the argument. Any brief comment? <laughs> I have one. I will use the, my prerogative as uh, a moderator uh, before I thank the, George and the panelists once again and liberate. Uh, uh, you have a comment. All right. Uh, we all have comments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have a, a question similar to those. And, and George just alluded to the question. Um, there's a tacit um, undercurrent in almost everything that's been said is that uh, we have a funding problem. The funding problem is really a political problem. Uh, and George just described that in one way. Um, and a lot of the arguments that we make typically, I think, are way too rational for the political process. <laughs> I... And many of the people in the room have had a lot more experience than I have in interacting with the administration and the regents. Do you think that there, or even the Senate, is really qualified, uh, capable of influencing a real political process as opposed to, you know, an idealized one that we kind of talk about all the time? <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer your question because the same you could ask the same question about about anything that's going on, for example, in Washington D.C. right now. <laughs> so um, I don't I don't know how to act other than rationally. And so um, your question is a fair one. How could we better affect the political process? How could we? How could we do a better job if the arguments which we're so convinced are compelling and rational aren't working? What should we be doing? I don't know. Should we be buying TV ads? I don't, I don't know what we should do. I do think that that's kind of beyond um, what we do best as an institution, as an academic senate or as a university. I think that part of our role in society is to, is to try to maintain rationality and sensibleness. <laughs> So um, I'm even uncomfortable with the notion of getting outside of our, uh, of our comfort zone in terms of what we do. But I think it's a fair question you're asking. I just don't know the answer. Uh, 
if we increased the 12.5%, there'd be more UC graduates in the legislature. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to make a, a, a quick comment um, in response to Chancellor Blumenthal and also into something Provost Brown said, which is that if you reconfigured your slides um, so that you didn't jump from 1970 to 2018, but actually did them historically, you would see that the problem that we're in now really dates from 2003 and then 2008 and 2010. That it's a much more conjunctural debate and it's a much more conjunctural problem than the long-term decline that you're describing. And that it seems to me in response to this sort of question, one of the things that needs to happen is that we need to own up to our own political mistakes um, during this period. I mean, one of the huge mistakes, I think, that UC made was conceding the um, inevitable and all but permanent decline in state funding. You know, we started valorizing the hybrid university. Provost Brown wants more independence, but more independence from different revenue sources means dependence on more people. And it ends up meaning that instead of leading with your public mission, you end up trying to find alternate funding sources, which in certain circumstances are necessary, but then create a feedback loop in which they go, look, you've got all these funding sources, right? Um, you know, even with all the tuition increases, our per student spending now in core numbers is down 30% since 2001. So clearly the alternative sources have not worked. Um, I see John Douglas has left, but you know, the tipping point makes the case that without substantial re-state funding, nothing is going to work. And until we lead with that, as opposed to, well, we've got to sort of accept that state funding is gone, and we need to find other ways to do it, we are losing the game. And we will continue to lose the game. And we need to really take that challenge, I think, very, very seriously. Because it's been a disaster since the contract with Schwarzenegger, which ideologically committed us to increasing tuition. Thank you. Um, one final comment. You've been very patient. Uh, we've gone over our allotted uh, time, but we thank you for your patience. Uh, my comment has to do with my interest in migration and immigration and uh, revolves on the notion of diaspora. We talk about eligibility for students. We talk about a master plan. We're talking about in-residence and residents and non-resident students. Think about the number of UC students who are not born in California. Not, I'm not talking about the out-of-state or international students who are residents, legal residents, who were not born here, many of whom come only fairly recently. We are engaged in a dynamic global and not just national process as we try to deal with this. The population increase that was fueled, uh, that was part of the stimulus for the master plan and the growth of the system emerged not merely because Californians were reproducing themselves, but because many people were coming to California. 
And that dynamic has not ended, despite the cost of housing, <laughs> uh, um, and is likely to continue. We know that many out-of-state students, if they're admitted as non-resident students, whether they're the U.S. out-of-state or international out-of-states, will stay. Some will stay in California, and many will go back to their own uh, uh, home, home countries or home states or elsewhere. Um, and that's good. It's a part of the internationalizing of higher education using the dynamics of movement, voluntary, often, uh, movement. We also know that many students who graduate from the University of California or other systems will not stay in state and will go elsewhere. I'd like to argue, as a matter of fact, that there's a hidden benefit as the California diaspora of UC graduates spreads out to certain states who may have challenges with regard to their own ability to think critically, <laughs> we may be, in fact, performing a vital service. Uh, so if we think of our master plan as not merely a state master plan, although it is in many technical sense, but a national and global master plan, we may be able to break through some of the arguments that seem to me relatively unproductive as to about whether the master plan is a good thing. Thank you very much for your participation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.